The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the editor of a newsletter that has been around since 1981. It's called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and you can learn more about that by calling my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or by going to my website at miningstocks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to our show. We're gratified by the increasing popularity of the show. I also want to thank each of our sponsors for making this show financially possible, and those sponsors, also a growing list of companies, Sandgold, Hawthorne Gold, Magellan Minerals, Timmins Gold, Barkerville Gold, that was formerly International Wayside, just changed their name, Crocodile Gold Corp., Metanor Resources, Riverside Resources, Western Pacific Resources, Pediment Gold, and Resource Consultants. Resource Consultants is a licensed precious metals broker that is headed by Pat Gorman, who will be uh, a fairly regular guest on this show from time to time. Pat has had some health problems and hence has not been on our show recently, but we're really looking forward to having him back on our show. He's in Tempe, Arizona. His number is 480-820-5877, 480-820-5877. Or if you'd like to know more about Pat's work uh, and his services, you can go to 
buysilvernow.com. That's www.buysilvernow.com to learn more about his service and to buy precious metals. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think really owns and runs America? And here's another one for you. Why have the rich Wall Street bankers been bailed out at the expense of the American taxpayer? Well, I think we may have some answers to those questions in our guest, our special guest this week. He's G. Edward Griffin. And Ed is the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island. Actually, Ed was our very first guest on our very first show back on March 24th of 2009. He'll talk about some of those same things, but he'll provide us with some more information about some new some things we were not able to cover in the first show. Uh, and I think you're going to want to really hear Ed's insights in terms of uh, trying to understand, really, why things are the way they are today, uh, why the policymakers are pulling the strings they are pulling. Uh, and uh, and so you're going to want to stick with us to hear Ed. He's coming up on at the end, halfway through the first hour and halfway through the second hour of this weekly show. Also coming up on our show will be a discussion with a new gold producer, a mining company, namely Barkerville Gold Mines, and they were, as I said a moment ago, International Wayside just changed their name to Barkerville Gold Mines. They have an exciting new gold production facility in British Columbia, and we'll be expanding that, have lots of exploration potential anyway. We'll be talking to Frank Callahan, the president and CEO, to, uh, who will give us more insights into that company and, uh, and what investors may look forward to in the future. Before we get on with our guests, I want to comment briefly about the markets. So far in 2010, doing pretty well. We're up 8.44% the other day, at least as of the close of business last week. But I do remain very, very skeptical, very concerned that we are in a major bear market, a secular bear market, and that what we've enjoyed since the lows of last March was just simply a natural bounce off the initial decline. And I want to quote for you, in fact, I want to read fairly extensively for you some of the remarks of Dr. Robert McHugh in his weekly newsletter. McHugh, and I quote, we believe the top is in for the rally from March 2009. We believe that top occurred yesterday, January 14, 2010. Amazingly, precisely 10 years from the inflation-adjusted all-time top in the industrials, that was in January 14, 2000, and amazingly, exactly 1,000 points lower. Here's why we believe this. First, if you go to the short-term charts we show in this week's newsletter on page 24, you see the rising parallel trends, the rising parallel trend channel for the S&P 500 and rising bearish wedge in the industrials we have been presenting for weeks. We pointed out in Thursday night's letter that the wedge looked complete. Well, it is. On Friday, prices dropped decisively below the bottom boundary of the rising bearish wedge and below the bottom boundary of the S&P 500 rising parallel trend channel. This suggests to us that catastrophic wave C down has started. There are no guarantees in this business, and there is nothing to stop the central planners from throwing a trillion dollars at the stock market Tuesday after spending the long weekend scheming, sending stock prices 20% higher. However, in dealing with probabilities, standard technical analysis, fundamentals, and the concept of generally free markets, the odds are higher than at any time since March 2009 that a top of significance is in. Further, he goes to say, markets love symmetry. So if a significant top came in Thursday, January 14th, as, as I believe is true, Robert says, it sure created a ton of symmetry. First, we have what 
we point out in the first paragraph above, then consider this. The number of calendar and trading days for the rally from March 2009 to January 14, 2010 is phi, that is 0.618, of the number of days for the decline from the October 2007 top to the March 2009 bottom. In other words, wave B's time is in a precise phi relationship with A's time taking 0.618 of the time wave A took to decline if B tops out on January 14th, as McHugh believes is the case. Quoting more of McHugh, he says, Consider what else occurred on January 14th, 2010. There was an intermarket bearish divergence between the industrials S&P 500 versus several other major markets. The industrials and S&Ps closed at a new high for the rally from March 2009, while trannies, NASDAQ, Composite, and NDX did not. They failed to confirm the new high in the industrials. Non-confirmations are typical for major tops. He provides a host of other other very compelling reasons why uh, why he believes that the uh, that the that we've seen the top in the B wave up, which is really the reaction to the initial wave down, and that we are now getting ready for the major decline. Now he's suggesting that the start of this decline could be fairly slow. And we might be looking at a month or two before we see a real true panic acceleration on the downside, uh, or it could even come later in the year. And that would jive with Roger Wiegand's ideas and a lot of other technical analysts who are suggesting problems more like in May rather than now or later in the year than, than right now. Regardless of the case, we need to be aware that this is a secular bear market. It's very easy to get uh, to get induced into going long, thinking the worst is over as they did in the 1930s on the major bounce off the bottom. Most people were really sucked into the market and hurt worst after the initial decline in the 1930s. And the real damage was done not, not in this crash of 1929, but the, the second leg down, the sea leg down in that bear market. So we want to be very, very careful. I believe if McHugh is right, if we're getting ready for this major sea wave down, and I think he is right, it's just a matter of timing, then we want to be ready for this event. And it would not be a bad idea, in my view, to start taking some profits. We've had some really good profits last year and this year. Take some profits, build some cash, get ready for some fantastic buying opportunities. Now, there won't be buying opportunities, in my view, in the general stock market. Not so much there, no, but I think in the gold market, in the gold share markets, for reasons I've discussed before, in a deflationary environment, and I believe this will be profoundly deflationary if McHugh is right, if we go into the C wave, if we take out the, the lows of March and head much, much lower, thousands of points lower, no doubt. If that occurs, then I think we are in a profoundly deflationary, deflationary environment. And as we've talked with Robert, uh, with Bob Hoy and others, insights into the bullishness for gold mining shares in a uh, in a deflationary environment is is extremely profound it is I think going to be the greatest time in in my lifetime for a bull market the greatest bull market in gold shares in my lifetime and I'm old enough to have lived through the 1970s I remember we had a couple of great years into in 1978 79 uh, in which the junior mining stocks were just, they just went parabolic. They went absolutely nuts on the upside. I think we're going to see that again, but this time it's going to be based on the reality of rising gold market, uh, gold mining profits. There will be not just uh, uh, speculation like there was in that time, but um, but there will be, uh, I think there will be a profoundly bullish trend in gold mining shares, as Bob Hoy suggests, for up to, 
uh, for up to 20 years or so, starting in uh, 2007. Well, that's uh, where I believe we're headed. McHugh thinks we're, we're very uh, close to the decline. Uh, we're going to be talking to um, Frank Callahan. He's the CEO of a company called Barkerville Gold Mines, which I told you about earlier. If Frank is with us uh, after the break, we're going to go to a commercial break now in just a few seconds. When we get Frank back, Frank will be talking about his mining company that he heads up, uh, a, pub- a public company that you can buy shares in, and they are in production or going into production very shortly. A, a very good story, I believe. We're going to hear what he has to say when he comes back. Uh, we're going to our commercial break now. I hope you'll stay with us to hear Frank Hall- Callahan's story, and then after that, of course, Ed Griffin later in the show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. Have you been acquiring physical gold, silver, and coins? Are you receiving the best price and the best service you can? Why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country? Resource Consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers, several websites, and countless stockbrokers and financial planners. Call them now and find out how they can help you. 800-494-4149. Or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. 
I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, we are supposed to have Frank Callahan, the CEO of Barkerville Gold, with us. Uh, at this moment, uh, we do not seem to have Frank with us. Um, I've asked uh, my friend and partner, Chen Lin, to call in, too, if he's available. He may not be available. So uh, he may just invite you, if you would like to call in with any questions or comments, you can call in te- uh, toll-free uh, to 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. If anyone's out there would like to call in with some comments on my introductory remarks today that would be great we'd like to hear from you uh, either pro or con on my views of the market uh... in the meantime i'd like to just discuss a little bit about some of our sponsors aside from barkerville gold those that i'm uh, much more familiar with uh... we have sandgold which is a company that uh, i have had in my newsletter for quite some time it's been a very exciting company sandgold is developing a gold mining project in manitoba in fact i was out there to visit that project some time ago, uh, a couple of years ago, actually, went a, a mile underground to see uh, that operation, quite an impressive operation. And uh, the main thing about Sandgold is they're finding enormously rich uh, gold deposit. They're uh, known as the, uh, the hinge zone, and parallel zones that are going with the hinge zone are just absolutely mind-boggling. If you were to ask me, is this stock fully priced at its current, at its current price, uh, I think it's close to 3 bucks. A share, I would have to say yes, it is. But uh, as one who we interviewed here on this show some time ago, Brent Cook, a very esteemed geologist, who said yes, uh, he agrees it's overvalued, but he's not selling because they're coming out with some enormously high-grade values that really are starting to make the Rice Lake uh, mine that uh, Sandgold has look every bit like the uh, very much like the Red Lake mine that was the Gold Corp company maker. And I, I honestly believe. Uh, as Dale Ginn, the president of Sandgold, said in our show, uh, Dale, uh, when I asked Dale if, if he thought that uh, Gold Corp had anything that compared to the 58 ounces over a fair intersection 
he said no. Uh, probably they may have had some numbers similar to that, but they were, you know, five six thousand feet down, not five or six hundred feet down. So, Sandgold is is a company that I, you know, I, I think it's fully valued for what they have now, but it's a company that has enormous upside potential. There's several others that I could comment on, but I understand that Chen is with me now. So rather than me babbling uh, along here uh, to talk about some of these gold stocks, I'd like to just uh, say hello to Chen and see what he has on his mind today. Hello, Chen. Are you there? Hi, Jay. How are you? This is, I'm here. You're there because uh, our uh, guest from Barkerville didn't show up. So uh, rather than have you come on at the end when we'd be squeezed for time, I thought I'd just get you on now and and see if you have any uh, any any thoughts about these markets. First of all, let me ask you. I'm up here in Vancouver, and I've not had a chance to look at the markets today. What's going on today? Market actually pretty strong today. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought um, Friday was a pretty bad. Technically, mm-hmm. it looks almost about to break, and today it came back very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been. Um, been selling, you know. I've been selling in my newsletter. Mm-hmm. I mentioned I've been selling um, in the past uh, week or so, uh, pretty aggressively because I was uh, using margin actually, a uh, short-term trade in December, and I made a lot of money on those. I'm selling, but mostly I sold too early. Look at the, you know, North American Palladium. It, it yeah. up another seven percent. That I sold it too early, but I made nice thirty, you know, percent profit in a few weeks. I mean, it's hard. It's not to sell, you know. So, so it, the market was just too good, and I sold a lot of stock, including today. Uh, I just uh, I, I'm um, out of almost out of margin now, so that makes me feel better, you know, because I don't I'm not a margin trader. I don't like to use margin, but just yeah. like uh, I saw very good risk reward uh, at the end of last year in December, so I used uh, pretty aggressive uh, margin trading. So now I'm taking off so I can sleep better. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell you, Chan, you have had a remarkable record. I mean, I guess you're, the one portfolio that I follow was up over 500% last year. Folks, uh, this is documented. Uh, I can document it. Chan has passed on the statements that show his IRA account that he manages for his wife. It was started out at 5400 in January of 2003 has now grown to 637,000 or so by the end of last year and it's for a lot of hard work and and you know very enterprising uh, ideas Chen is a free thinker and isn't locked in by some of the ideologies that I, that yours truly may be locked into so Chen I want to congratulate you on that wonderful performance and and folks you can take advantage of that too by subscribing to Chen's newsletter called what is Chen buying what is Chen selling and you can call our office uh, for a, a low price trial subscription. Uh, call Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426. You can also go to our website to connect through and, and learn more about Chen Lin. Well, Chen, uh, so the markets are strong today. Uh, I was reading Robert McHugh, in fact, uh, the introductory uh, remarks that I made this week. I took a lot of, of McHugh's remarks verbatim. And he, like you were suggesting, suggested that that the markets were breaking down uh, really badly and uh, thought that we were going to see a major decline in the equity markets. But then, of course, what happened, he said, of course, the policymakers, the central planners can always come in with massive amounts of money and buy the S&P 500. So maybe that's going on. Who knows? But in the meantime, I guess we're we're making money, right? Right. Um, Yeah, it's... uh... It's it's kind of unusual, uh, but you know the market goes up. You know my portfolio goes up. I'm, I'm happy. Uh, I'm just very carefully watching all the different signs. If there's really really trouble, 
some signs, I would, uh, you know, I would, I would be the first to run. <laughs> so that's that's my plan. Just, uh, you know, carefully monitor the market and then take the ride. I ride as long as I can. And, okay, uh, Chen. I just realized that we have Frank Callahan. Uh, he's the president of Barkerville Gold Mines. Would you care to to hang in here and listen to what Frank has to say? Frank, are you there? Frank. I am. Good afternoon. Oh, great, great. Glad, glad you could join us. I'm sorry you're uh, a little bit late for this segment, So, but we, uh, we want you to tell the story of Barkerville Gold. We've got, he's telling me we've got four minutes. I'm going to see if I can squeeze a couple more minutes out from this segment. Could you just tell our listeners, Barkerville Gold just changed its name from International Wayside. That's and correct. what are you planning to do? If you could just give our listeners an idea of the size and scope of your gold mining project, uh, when you're producing, how much you're producing, what cost, you know, what might investors look forward to in terms of cash flow or earnings per share? I guess that's really the bottom line, Frank, what we like to cut to right away as soon as possible. If you can Sure. So this project is in central British Columbia, and we've been working on it for 15 years. Um, International Wayside Gold Mines becomes Barkerville Gold Mines Thursday, this coming Thursday. Um, And the size of the resource and reserve that we have right now is sitting at 800,000 ounces, a little bit more than that. Um, We will commence production at the QR Mine and Mill, and we're starting production in about three weeks. Um, The production that we'll see from... That facility is about 25,000 ounces and, uh, per, per annum. And then we're going to truck from uh, Wells, uh, which is in central British Columbia, some 60 miles to the QR facility. It's a 900-ton-a-day facility, and we'll be trucking in the second quarter about another 20-odd, 20 25,000 ounces from that facility. So we expect to be a 50,000-ounce-a-year producer uh, going into year one. Year two will be about the same. And we're looking at, we've picked up another facility. It's a 1,500-ton-a-day facility, which will be increased to 2,000 tons a day. And we're, we're shooting for 2,012 to try to increase that resource to somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 ounce a year per annum. That's our goal is to try to be a 100,000 ounce a year producer. Frank, uh, do you have any ideas of what your costs per ounce are going to be? We certainly do. So combined, we're looking at about $510 an ounce all in. Mm-hmm. That's uh, cash as well as non-cash cost. That's correct. The so. facility that we've actually just taken over, the QR facility, was built by Kinross uh, in 1994. It cost about $40 million. If you were to actually try to permit that today, it would probably take you about 10 years and cost you in the neighborhood of about $70 million. So the company's going in. We have absolutely no debt whatsoever. Uh, we have about 42 million shares issued and outstanding, uh, fully diluted. And um, we expect to uh, see a, a rollover somewhere in the neighborhood of about $25 million in profit this year. That's what we're aiming for. Wow, that was, that's fantastic. How, what is your share price, and how many shares are out now? So there's 42 million shares issued and outstanding today, and our share price is probably about $0.80 cents a share. So our market cap is really quite low. We're about $30 million market cap. And the reason that is is that we're sort of quite unknown. What we've done is we've taken the assets of four different public companies and put them all together into one, and that actually, that whole transaction actually completes at the end of January this year. Wow. Uh, Chen, do you have a question uh, for Frank? Wow. Uh, so what's your mine life? The, mi- the mine life that we're looking at at the QR facility right now, uh, we've got uh, going into year one, and this is on a pre-feasibility study that was just completed. Um, for both facilities, we've got a five-year mine life from, uh, from both locations at present. Um, there are more ounces, but they haven't been put into the pre-feasibility study, and that will take place uh, this year. We actually expect to uh, in, 
add another pre-feasibility study to it, which we expect to add somewhere in the neighborhood of in excess of another half a million ounces to the pre-feasibility study, which uh, we're hoping that will carry us through to another eight-year mine life. Wow. Are you fully funded uh, for the, you know, for the well? We, yes, we are fully funded at present. We announced the financing uh, at the, in the middle of December. Uh, it was a $10 million uh, financing, and uh, that will complete uh, this week, and uh, we are fully funded. Uh, Frank, as I understand in talking to you oh, several months ago, I guess, uh, this project uh, up there in British Columbia seems to have a lot of exploration potential. Could you talk to that a little bit? Certainly can. What we've done is in putting together these four different, uh, the, these four different issuers and putting their assets together, the belt is about, um, about 27 miles long, and the company, and probably in the neighborhood of about five miles wide, and the company owns all the ground. There's seven former producing mines on the property, and the cumulative production, both from placer and from load mining, is just light of 4 million ounces. That's recorded production from the area. So we expect to grow organically, sort of internally. We've, we've got lots of ground to look at, and, uh, and there's lots of exploration potential. We put out news even yesterday that we've actually found gold in a different rock formation that hadn't been recognized as being gold-bearing before. So we've got now four different gold systems that we're looking at in the camp, and uh, they're all quite productive. Well, uh, it sounds like a very exciting story to me. Chen, uh, what are your thoughts now? Yeah, very interesting. I mean, what's looking? What's your tick symbol? The, symbol WG, and, the, yeah. the symbol today is WGM, but on Thursday, this coming Thursday, it will be uh, BGM, Barkerville Gold Mines. BGM will be the new symbol on Thursday. That's uh, that's a very a very exciting check story, you Frank. I'm, I'm really uh, Chen. Anything else? Oh, very interesting. I have to say, I'm pretty impressive. Um, yes. Yeah, so we, we we're going to be talking to you some more, Frank. I know you're a sponsor of the show, and we're very thankful to you for that. That makes our show helps to make our show financially possible. I think at the same time, this is a very very good story. As I was telling my listeners in the introductory section, I have never been more bullish on the gold mining sector because of the rising real price of gold. Frank, I think you're at the right place at the right time. I know you've been up there a long time. As they say, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So you were in British Columbia all this time. Your time has come, Frank, I think. I think it's the time for investors in gold to really start reaping some profits. I think it's going to happen. And it really is a very, very interesting story. It looks like one I should have told my listeners and, and subscribers about some time ago. But in any event, thanks, Frank, for coming on. We'll have you on again sometime in the not-too-distant future. You let us know when you think you have some important news to share with our listeners. Thanks very much, Jay. Thank you all. All the best. Talk and to you folks, soon. Uh, thank you very much, Frank. So all we'll right. talk to you soon. And all the best. Uh, coming up next is G. Edward Griffin. He's going to talk about who really runs America. Who Who is the power behind the throne in America? Is it you, the taxpayer, or is it an invisible hand that controls and runs our country? We'll be right back with G. Edward Griffin. Don't go away. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, really, who controls and runs the United States of America? Is it you, the taxpayer, the citizen, the voter? 
Or is there an invisible hand that controls our economy, our country? Are there people, powers behind the throne, as some people allege, that are really in control of your destiny and mine? The U.S. Constitution supposedly provided Americans with a form of government that allowed the people to elect their leaders and remove them when they got out of line. There was a philosophy among our founding fathers that government was to serve the people rather than the people serving government. That was a novel idea in history for sure. How do you feel? Do you believe your government is serving you, or are you being called on to serve the government? And who is it that the government is, in fact, serving? Are they just getting fat themselves, or are there some other people that they are loyal to? In The Creature from Jekyll Island, our guest today, G. Edward Griffin, discusses how the Federal Reserve Bank was used to grab power from the American people and engage in systemic theft of the wealth of miners and farmers and manufacturers, people who really create wealth. Ed talks about the last two world wars. Who was behind their creation and how that sent tens of thousands of American lives, American young men to their death? They were sacrificed. Were they sacrificed for your freedom and mine or for some other, some other interest? Uh, Ed talks about how the ruling elite has used legalized systemic theft to control the media and educational system, not only to consolidate political power but to socialize risk and while at the same time privatizing profit. We had Ed Griffin on our very first show last March on the 21st, 24th, uh, but we barely scratched the surface that week, so I wanted to get Ed back to explore in more depth how a group of ruling elite have managed to circumvent the Constitution and negate the democratic republic that our founding fathers meant for us to have. For those of you who may not be familiar with Ed Griffin and his work, here is a brief bio. G. Edward Griffin is a writer and documentary film producer with many successful titles to his credit, such as The Creature from Jekyll Island, and by the way, I think that's a must-read for every American, uh, World Without Cancer, and The Discovery of Noah's Ark. Very diverse, interesting topics. He is the recipient of the Telly Award for Excellence in Television Production. Listed in Who's Who in America, he is well-known for his talent for researching difficult topics such as archaeology, the Federal Reserve System, terrorism, international subversion, the history of taxation, U.S. foreign policy, cancer therapy, and presenting them all in a very clear term, very easy-to-understand manner. He graduated from the University of, Mex uh, of Michigan, uh, enrolled in the College for Financial Planning in Denver, Colorado, in order to better understand the real world of investments as preparation for his book on the Federal Reserve System. He obtained a CFP, designation, that's Certified Financial Planner, uh, in 1989. He is the founder and president of the Coalition for Visible Ballots, the Cancer Cure Foundation, the Freedom Force International, and you can learn more about Ed Griffin's work and all the wonderful things he's been doing for so long at realityzone.com. Well, Ed, welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thanks, uh, Jay. I appreciate your inviting me back. Well, it's just a pleasure to meet up with you and talk to you again. We first met, I was getting close to a decade ago, right after 9-11, yes. down there in Mexico, and you were speaking to an audience and, and had a, a standing uh, ovation like I've never seen before, uh, in, in real life at least. Uh, and uh, to me, that, that just said a lot about, about your work and, uh, uh, and the integrity of your work, too. I've, I've learned to know you over these years, and certainly it's just a uh, you know, very, very great experience to have you with me. I wanted to um, thank you again, Ed, for helping me launch the inaugural show of 
turning hard times into good times last March 24th because uh, it was you, and I thought that you were, given what I wanted to do with this show, thought you were the most appropriate person to have on because I think we have to really understand what are the causes for the policies, who's behind the policies that are being made right now, why are we in the kind of financial problems, you know, financial trouble that we're in now? And, and you really launched the show very well in, in that regard. We had uh, followed up with other people uh, that are of similar mind. Ron Paul, for example, Catherine Austin Fitz, uh, you know, a number of others. John Perkins, maybe to an extent. Uh, and, and then more on the financial side, more directly involved with markets. But from a theoretical frame point, uh, point of view, you provided, you and Ron Paul and Catherine Austin Fitz and some of the other people provide the basic understanding, I think, that Americans are lacking for the most part because we have been trained to think in a way, well, actually, I think we've been trained not to think. But anyway, for the sake of those who may not, uh, uh, for the sake of those who may not have heard our first show and for the benefits of those who have not yet read The Creature from Jekyll Island, which, as I said, I think everybody should read, I would like to start by asking you to tell our listeners what that book is about and what were you trying to do with The Creature from Jekyll Island. Well, that's really uh, quite a, a tall order to do in a few <laughs> minutes, uh, but it has to be done, I know. This is the age of the soundbite. We and, have lots uh, of time, Ed, <laughs> so, so feel free to uh, well, don't, actually, don't feel pressured on this one. It's a rich history, and that's mm-hmm. why it's hard to condense, because those of us who have uh, plowed through the history are so wrapped up in the details of it, mm-hmm. and it's such a fascinating story that we want to dump everything that we know. Sure. But, in, but in reality, the the outline of the story is very simple. It, it, the outline is that there was a relatively small group in terms of numbers but very powerful group in terms of financial influence. I'm talking about the the owners of the largest banks in America. Back in 1910, culminating in 1913, decided to do what they could to capture the monetary system of the United States and to uh, to get a monopoly to create the nation's money, to take that power away from the government, have the government, through compliant politicians, give that power to this private banking group, and they, they thought they'd give it a try. <clears throat> so they met in, in secret, literally, on Jekyll Island back in 1910. They put the plan together. They drafted up what became a cartel, no different than a sugar cartel or an oil cartel. It happened to be a, a banking cartel made up of the powerful banks. They, they uh, drafted a cartel agreement. Then they took it to Washington, D.C., and uh, across the top of the agreement, they put the words Federal Reserve Act. They had it passed into law. And now, all of a sudden, in, at the end of 1913, the cartel agreement became binding on all Americans as law. And so people ever since then have thought that the Federal Reserve System was an agency of the federal government because it had the power of law behind it. If you didn't comply with their cartel agreement, you go to prison. So it looked like a government operation. And that, that's the simple storyline right there. A private group of banks formed a cartel, captured the uh, control of the money system of the United States government. And that was just the beginning because once they had control of the money, now it was relatively easy to control everything else. Just mm-hmm. a little time. If you can create money out of nothing, which they do, you can buy up 
everything, and that's basically what they've done. They've bought up the the government. Uh, they have, uh, you know, through large campaign contributions and lobbying activities from the giant uh, corporations which they control. They literally have the loyalties of most of the elected representatives of government at all levels. Uh, they have moved their agents into the regulatory agencies, such as the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, that no longer really uh, serves to protect the people. It serves to protect the pharmaceutical industry, which most Americans think that the FDA is regulating, when in fact it's the pharmaceutical industry that's regulating the FDA. And all of this flows from that, uh, that mischief uh, of being able to create money out of nothing. So that's the story, and there's a lot of history behind it, and who did what on what date and how they accomplished it, and it's well worth the, the read. But you walk away from the whole thing realizing that the United States has been literally captured by a relatively small cabal, and they're mm. running the show today. Mm. Very interesting. It sounds a little bit, when you discuss the pharmaceutical industry, a little bit like the banking industry and the Fed itself, because essentially you always have at the Federal Reserve, in control of the Federal Reserve, large corporate banking interests that come right off of Wall Street. Well, that's right, and they're intertwined financially at the board of directors level. They're all financed by the largest banks, and it gets to be a tangled web. It's hard to say where the banking industry stops and other aspects of industry begin because they've all sort of intertwined now. And what we really have to face is that the United States has been converted from a government which... Which we used to call a republic, mm-hmm. which uh, means uh, generally it means it's one of great limited powers and it's designed to protect the people and serve the people. Uh, but it's been converted from that uh, over the years to now it's a government of cartels, mm-hmm. big, large corporate cartels in all of the industries, mm-hmm. whether it's healthcare or whether it's uh, pharmaceuticals, whether it's uh, military, industrial, uh, whether it's banking. Uh, you just look at everything that's important that drives our society, and uh, we're, we're dominated by cartels. The largest uh, companies in that industry have formed together. They work as one, and they're the ones that have been able to use the agencies and the personnel of government uh, to uh, implement their plans, and the, the average voter doesn't know anything about that. He's, he's not aware of that, and so he thinks when he goes to the polls and he casts his vote for some candidate who's already been bought <laughs> by one of these cartels or several of them, he thinks he's actually participating in his own political destiny. He doesn't realize the action was all over long before that candidate even got on the ballot. Mm-hmm. So it's a, quite a different world that we live in compared to what people think they're living in. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it sounds to me, Ed, as I remember studying the definitions of the isms when I took economic economics classes way back when, that uh, what you're describing could be described as fascism with large corporate interest in bed with the government to uh, protect their own interests to get richer at the cost of the, of the general populace. Does that sound right to you? Well, it's absolutely right on target, uh, Jay. Uh, whether you call it uh, fascism or Nazism or even communism or socialism mm-hmm. or any of these other isms, if you, if you take the label off, Mm-hmm. Look at the mechanism, of the essence of the structure underneath. You'll find that basically they're all the same. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, it is a blend of uh, of industry and commerce and government. It's all tied together. And uh, there's a ruling elite. That's the bottom line. There's a ruling elite, and in some um, 
in some systems, they make a bigger issue of pretending that the ruling elite represents the people. Mm-hmm. In other systems, they don't pretend that very much. They just say, hey, we're the ruling elite, like it or not. But uh, <clears throat> in a lot of these systems, such as communism and socialism, for example, and, and what we have here in this country, I won't even give it a name, but it's the same thing. The, the, it's important for the ruling elite to convince the masses that they are in control, that they represent the people. It's just part of the game. And uh, it's, you know, it's wrapped up in this word democracy. As long as you call something democratic, then it has that, that magic sound to it. And everybody said, oh, well, as long as it's dem- democratic or if we're spreading democracy around the world, then that's good. It doesn't make any mm-hmm. difference how many hundreds of thousands of people we have to kill and conquer. Right. <clears throat> if we're spreading democracy, it's all worth it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and it's I, all words. And, you know. Interestingly enough, I think it was pointed out by somebody that the word democracy doesn't appear once in our Constitution. It was to be a republic, as you pointed out. But, Ed, I would like to, I'd like to question a little bit on this issue of a cartel. You, to me, a cartel is a few, or you know, maybe that's an oligopoly. Is just a few major co- industries, companies that control the price and control the output or the amount of production. But uh, you know, here we have thousands of banks in the United States. How could we have a cartel? Well, you can have thousands of banks um, in in a cartel, but cartels uh, are not defined by the number of participants, mm-hmm. uh, but, but by their function. And in all cartels, you can have a lot of lesser participants, but they don't really control the cartel. The cartel controls them, and they benefit from it, of course. Um, but they're not allowed to compete with the big members of the cartel. They're regulated. Uh, it was always the case with the banking cartel from the very beginning that they wanted to uh, limit uh, and eventually eliminate competition if they could. They only wanted a few very large banks astride the system. But by that time, they were already hundreds if not thousands of little banks already operating so the large operators of the cartel took charge and they brought those little operators under their control Mm -hmm. so that means that the little operators really would never have a chance you know of a snowball in hell of competing and dislodging the big giant new york banks because the New York banks were regulating them, and uh, they were setting conditions in place that would make it possible for the larger banks to uh, to benefit, but in many cases it would drive the little banks out of existence. And we've seen that process continue for many, many years, and every year the number of banks becomes smaller and smaller and smaller, and they're being gobbled up by the bigger banks uh, as time goes by. And so eventually the original plan of the founders of the Federal Reserve System is coming to fruition before our very eyes, fewer and fewer banks. Mm-hmm. And certainly the ones that are existing and are dominant in certain industries, uh, for example, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, have something well over 60% of the derivative business, I think, something like that. Oh, of course. The, the, the numbers that you're so familiar with, Jay, and I don't even try to keep up with them because they're just staggering and they're constantly changing. But it is obvious that the what the three or four or five largest banks in the system uh, dominate uh, 99% of the financial market in the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you could have many participants, for example, in the phar- pharmaceutical industry, which you mentioned, uh, or in the banking industry, and yet have it under one umbrella, one controlling force, essentially, that, that keeps those entities within line and operating in a, in a cartel fashion, I guess is what you're saying. 
Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, and uh, the number involved is not so important. Uh, it's the number who control. That's the important thing. And in almost every case, there's one dominant uh, force and then maybe two or three lesser ones, and that's, that's really the nucleus of, of every cartel. Okay, Ed, you mentioned the elite, the ruling elite. I'd like to get to some names, if we could. You, you, um, I, I know some of the names that were involved. Uh, you mentioned, uh, well, could you just go back and tell us who were some of the people that formed the Federal Reserve that went to Jekyll Island, or at least were, were represented at Jekyll Island when they plotted to put in a central bank, the Federal Reserve in the United States? Who were some of those banking interests? They weren't just U.S. banking interests. Were they international uh, from the Anglo-American Empire primarily, or, or what? Who were they? Well, it is true that there were international interests involved, um, but that, that was an indirect connection. The people who went to Jekyll Island back in 1910 and put this all together uh, were Americans, uh, One with one case that he was a naturalized American citizen, but they were all Americans. But the firms that they represented uh, were very close to European firms. Um, there were seven men all together, and uh, they they represented primarily the banking interests of uh, the Rockefellers and the Morgans, and uh, the National City Bank of New York was represented. Uh, Kuhn Loeb and Company, which was an international investment house, was well represented, uh, and uh, but th- those institutions, um, for example, Kuhn Loeb and Company uh, was. Um, uh, very closely connected with the uh, with the Rothschild banking mm-hmm. dynasty in England and France, and in fact, there's one fellow, Paul Warburg, who was a full partner in Cum Laude and Company. Uh, was he was the naturalized American citizen? He was born in Germany, and but he maintained a very close uh, relationship with his brother Max Warburg, who was the head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. And and so indirectly through the back rooms and through the investment portfolios which they held, they were very closely aligned with the great uh, European banking interests. But on the surface, at least it looked like an American institution, which, uh, frankly, it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, their mischief was strictly uh, here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, you mention in your book, I think, in, in uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, um, the Fabian Socialists, uh, and they had a role to play, did they not, in the creation of, of some of these uh, elitist ideas, if not, in fact, uh, structures and, and people involved? Well, yes, the, the Fabians uh, were very important, uh, especially in, in Europe in those days, in the development of, um, well, they called themselves the Fabian Socialist Society. Mm-hmm. But there's that word again, socialism, uh, doesn't really mean too much if you remove that word, you realize what they were uh, developing and advocating was collectivism. That's the basic word. And, mm-hmm. and uh, they really had uh, no problem with the, uh, the Nazis when they came along in later years uh, because they, that also is collectivism. Mm-hmm. And many of the Fabian socialists were on board in the beginning uh, with the communist movement. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, they thought Stalin was a wonderful guy. And it wasn't only until after communism came to full force in the Soviet Union and the the brutal nature of it became obvious, then some of these more genteel Fabian socialists backed away and they said, oh, well, 
they're they're misapplying collectivism. They're doing it in the wrong way. They're they're on the right track. They're doing the right thing, but they're brutal. We should have uh, a collectivism with a more gentle face to mm-hmm. it. You know, and that's about the only kind of division you find between mm-hmm. one group of collectivists and the other is mm-hmm. that their style is different, but their underlying goals are exactly the same. But uh, the the thing that they were promoting was collectivism, the idea that the group is more important than the individual. Mm-hmm. individual must be sacrificed, if necessary, for the greater good of the greater number, that the state should be the great organizer and mover of society, and everybody should be uh, subject to the state. Individuals are not important. The state is all, you know, all of this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. The, the, all of the ingredients of uh, collectivism, all of the things that are destroying America today, mm-hmm. these are things that were being developed in the early days by the Fabian socialists, but they were not alone. They were just perhaps some of the most influential uh, of the group. But we were looking at, as I understand, the Fabian socialists were really a group of maybe Oxford and Cambridge intellectuals uh, that were highly regarded, probably of money class people for the most part. They were considered the sort of the, the top of the, uh, of the order of, uh, of society. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely correct. Yeah, they were the uh, well-educated group and the and the wealthiest and uh, and most titled among all of uh, British society. They were the intellectuals, and um, you know they had plenty of time on their hands mm-hmm. to, <laughs> to sit around in study groups and dream up these things. Yeah. Eventually, they became the dominant force in the Labour Party, which was kind of a, a natural evolution. You always find the very wealthy and privileged people when they decide they want to become influential in society, they start to champion uh, the the working class, right? right. And that makes them look very uh, respectable. But in, in reality, they've always had and maintained their elitist mentality. And they, they use the working class uh, against themselves. Okay, you're talking in the past tense, but I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken, the Fabian Socialist, uh, the Fabian Society still exists. And in, in fact, if I'm not wrong, Tony Blair was a member of the Fabian. Oh, yes, you're quite right, yeah. There are a lot of very prominent uh, British politicians who are members of the Fabian Society. And um, it's not much in the news. Uh, it's, it's a very important group, however. Well, when I was in London a couple of years ago, I made it a point to look up the uh, headquarters of the Fabian Society, and I was mm-hmm. surprised to find how small it was. It was a little side street with a little sign sticking off of a building, and it was upstairs. Mm-hmm. It just looked like hardly anything, you know, but it is a powerful group. Was Cecil Rhodes involved with that at some point in the, in the formation of the Fabian Group? I'm not aware that Cecil Rhodes himself uh-huh. was influential, but Cecil Rhodes, I think, actually set in motion uh, a more important organization than the Fabians. Oh, and, who's that? Uh, well, that, one of the interesting things about this, uh, Jay, is that uh, they were smart enough never to adopt a name. Uh-huh. Um, we learn about this, by the way, from the writings of uh, Carol Quigley, Mm-hmm. Now, Carol Quigley is deceased now, but he was, um, about 10 or 15 years ago, he was a very well-known college professor at Georgetown University, and he wrote some very important books on this topic. And, by the way, he was the teacher of uh, Bill Clinton when mm-hmm. Clinton was a student at Georgetown. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it was largely uh, through um, Quigley that Clinton received the nomination and the appointment to the Rhodes Scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, the, the point of all of this is that uh, the history of this group that Cecil Rhodes created is now well documented, but it's one of the most secret uh, societies ever created, and uh, it's very much in existence today. And um, 
one of the reasons that people don't know about it is what I just mentioned a moment ago, is that they decided not to have a name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they reasoned that, well, look, if we don't have a name, who can, they can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so even their historian, like uh, uh, Quigley, when he describes this group in his books, sometimes he refers to it as a group, sometimes he calls it the network, sometimes he calls it um, uh, you know, the club, uh, but it doesn't have a name. But the fact is that uh, it is a very real organization. It was founded by Cecil Rhodes. He took all of his fabulous uh, wealth that he acquired from the diamond mines and, and the uh, resources of South Africa when he was the uh, chancellor of South Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, most people thought that that fabulous wealth went to his heirs, and that's not true. It was all uh, devoted to the creation of a secret society. Uh, and to cut this short, uh, to get through all the fascinating history on that, that secret society was created in, uh, by his uh, seven wills. Mm-hmm. The, uh, will, the Rhodes Scholarship was just one little tip of the iceberg. That's how they recruit some of their more prominent people into this secret society, as they give them a Rhodes Scholarship and send them to Cambridge and, and get them properly indoctrinated. And uh, under that guy, they get around and meet all the important people in the world. Okay, Ed, I'm going to have to uh, interrupt just for a second here. We're going to take a we're going to take a commercial break. We're going to come right back with you. Want to pick up on this thought of the Fabian Socialists and how that influenced the intellectuals in America and the policies that we have in America now that are causing us uh, so much grief, I think, uh, and, and doing away with the free markets that we thought we had in America. Don't go away, folks. We're going to be right back with Ed Griffin, uh, more from the creature from Jekyll Island. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. 
Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, uh, with Ed Griffin. Uh, we uh, were talking with Ed Griffin, uh, the author of Creature from Jekyll Island, a, a fantastic book that I think every American who cares about his country needs to read. Once you've read that book, once you've understood who is behind the American throne, where the power is coming from that, that, that decides who we get to vote for for president, that decides when we go to war, when we do all kinds of other things, the policies, who really sets those policies. Once you start to understand who's pulling the strings behind government, then a lot of the things that are going on these days, when Goldman Sachs gets bailed out and their, and their wealthy bankers get to run off with their tens of millions of dollars of bonuses while average Americans are sweating and losing their homes and losing their jobs, uh, it starts to make sense. And you start to realize something is really, really wrong here. And we need to get involved. We need to do something, if it's possible, to try to turn this, to turn this around as citizens. But we need to be informed. And frankly, I think the information has not been forthcoming, and that's not an accident either, I believe. But anyway, Ed, I want to ask you, we were talking about the Fabian Socialist um, one name, one very prominent name, and a name I think was most significant in shaping American economic policy was John Maynard Keynes. He also was a Fabian socialist. Would you care to talk about Keynes just a moment? Well, yeah, I think you've uh, identified the essential characteristics of Keynes. He was a, a socialist, a Fabian socialist. Uh, and uh, by the way, the, the um, strategy of the Fabian socialists, I think, is just as important as their goals um, 
their uh, emblem, <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> is they have several emblems, but one of them is uh, a turtle, which means that they believe in moving slowly so as not to uh, arouse uh, serious opposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other uh, thing they have on the stained glass window in their house where they used to uh, have their meetings was, believe it or not, a wolf in sheep's clothing. (laughs) (laughs) A wolf with a sheepskin over its head. And, uh, I mean, these guys are pretty, uh, you know, pretty blatant about it. They were confident that nobody would ever be reading their material except themselves. So so their strategies uh, are, are very important as well. And uh, this is where Keynes comes into play, because they believe that the best way to conquer uh, a society or a nation is, is not through force of arms, not to come in and invade the country and kill a lot of people, but to subvert their institutions, mm-hmm. capture their media, the news channels, to capture control of the money system, things like that. And this was their, always their strategy. And so now we look at a guy like John Maynard Keynes, and what's he talking about? Well, how to capture and use a monetary system to bring the people of the, of the nation under control. And Keynes really believed that the, uh, the government had an, a great opportunity to uh, direct the nation by using the money supply and by creating money out of nothing and expanding the money supply, which would give the government you know, unlimited power over the people and he figured that by the time the people woke up to the fact that they were paying for all of this through the loss of purchasing power, it would be too late. And in fact, they might never realize it. That it would happen so slowly that mm-hmm. uh, each generation would pass away before the full impact of the deed was evident. And uh, so that, what more can you say? It's, it's mm-hmm. a matter of what they were trying to do to control the people through uh, economic and social mm-hmm. measures rather than military measures. And the other way is to be patient and gradual with it. Mm-hmm. Well, Ed, I've heard it said, and I guess if you tried this experiment, you'd probably go to jail for some you know, animal rights violation or something. But I've heard it said that you could put a, uh, a frog in, uh, in water, in cold water, and turn up the heat slowly, and he'd just sit there and get cooked. But if you drop a frog into a boiling pot, he would immediately jump out. Um, you know, assuming that's true, it seems to me that's what's happened to Americans. We've been put into a pot of water that has been slowly turned, the heat has slowly been turned up on us, and we've just sat there and sort of gotten cooked. We've gotten cooked with Keynesian ideas, the notion that, well, you know, uh, we, you know, if you told people two or three generations ago that we're going to have a communist dictatorship, we're going to have a socialist dictatorship, we're going to take, we're going to take all your wealth and, and distribute it the way we best think it's, you know, in our, in our government's best interest, however government defines the best interest of the people. If they did that immediately, there would have been a heck of a revolt, I think. I think there would have been a lot of really angry people. But slowly, little by little, they've taken more and more away from us, it seems, in terms of raising taxes uh, and, and government regulation. I mean, I was just dumbfounded when I come off the, air, the airplane in Montreal the other day. I'd get to get on the airplane to come back to the States. Everybody was being searched and patted down. Every little item that you carried on the plane was gone through and looked at with a fine-tooth comb. I mean, this is just not the America that I was used to growing up in, but it certainly is something that's sort of come on us gradually, hasn't it? Well, it has come on us gradually, but, you know, in addition to that, there have been little blips along the way that mm-hmm. sort of bump us there, and this is the politics of fear coming into play. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. If the American people 
will accept almost any kind of indignation, indignity against them, uh, against their persons or against their freedom, against their dignity, if they can be convinced that it was in their own best interest to protect them from terrorism or to protect them from crime of some nature, to protect them against a, an imaginary swine flu or something, get them scared about something, mm-hmm. really, really scared, mm-hmm. and then they'll, they'll do anything. So, so uh, we're seeing a lot of them in order for their safety, in essence. They'll give up the bowl of porridge uh, for their for their lifetime savings, if, just to right. stay alive for the next moment or so, yeah. uh, so to speak. The short-term interest, the immediate interest, and in, in ready to sacrifice all their freedoms and everything else in order for their security and their safety. Right, and especially yeah, the the, the safety angle. They they have to make these threats seem very plausible and and very frightening. Really, really scary. Well, let me ask you, Ed, what do you think about the Christmas Day event uh, when the fellow got on the airplane and allegedly was going to blow up the airplane? How dangerous do you think that? Do you think that was for real? Well, I think it really happened. In that sense, it was for real. But Uh I have a very strong uh, suspicion about most of these uh, so-called acts of terrorism, Mm -hmm. that they're staged. They're real, but Mm -hmm. they're staged. And I think that that particular one, I don't think we've seen all the facts come out yet. Mm-hmm. There, there are stories, for example, that witnesses, uh, very credible witnesses, attorneys who you can identify, you know where they live, you can call them on the phone. These are not just fictitious people. Say that they, uh, when they got on that plane, they saw this uh, so-called Christmas bomber uh, being escorted onto the plane by a very well-dressed person, got him on the plane because he didn't have a passport. Mm. So he had help. He had help from somebody in high positions. You see, interesting. The, what the about? media is not carrying that, but no. so I think that, you know there's something there behind the scenes which we don't know yet, and I think it's all part of that. Keep the American people scared. Keep them constantly aware of this threat of terrorism, and that's that's the main reason for all of this rigmarole in the airports. It's not to to stop terrorists, but it's to keep Americans aware of the threat of terrorism, so that they will continue to accept indignities. What about 9-11? How much of that, I mean, what, what are your thoughts about 9-11, Ed? Well, there are two levels of thought on that. I think it is beyond any doubt. Uh, only a madman would deny the fact that the terrorists, so-called, on 9-11, uh, were encouraged and they were allowed to strike. Mm-hmm. And this is part of a long-term pattern. I think that the, there are people in, in government who really were anxiously looking for some kind of an event that would scare the American people and then be a justification for all of these things like the Patriot Act and all of the other uh, indignities that are being foisted upon us. This was done to get us into World War One. It was done to get us into World War Two. The FDR administration was well aware that the Japanese were coming to attack Pearl Harbor, did everything they could to prevent the commanders at uh, Pearl Harbor from knowing about it so that they would be sitting ducks. Uh, yeah, they, they, uh, this is proven now. There's no mm-hmm. longer any serious question about this. Why? Because they wanted to, the benefit of that. They wanted to, to frighten the American people, to anger the American people into accepting getting into World War II and so forth. Uh, yeah, there's no question that that was done on 9-11. Now, the next level of thought is, was the government agencies of some kind, were they behind this? Mm-hmm. Uh, this, I don't know. Uh, I'll leave it that to other experts who've devoted their uh, large portion of their lives to that issue. But I think it's well worth considering. 
the bottom line is that I do not believe we have a genuine threat from terrorism that uh, that exists beyond the degree to which it is created by certain agencies of our own government. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, and if this you can you can run down on the internet and it's authentic, a large number of uh, these uh, extremist terrorist groups over in the Middle East that are teaching hatred of the West and hatred of America are being funded by the CIA. The textbooks that they're using to teach these poor little kids were translated and written by professors from American universities on Mm. contract to the CIA. Mm. In other words, they're trying to create a credible enemy, hoping that eventually one of those poor people will strap some bombs to themselves and then blow somebody up. Now we've got an excuse to be all angry and go ahead and pass the Patriot Act. Well, once in a while they do, of course, strap some bombs to themselves yeah. and blow some people up. And Yeah, but where is uh, all this hatred coming from? Yeah, well, I know... And that's the point. Yeah, uh, uh, certainly I know uh, Ron Paul has talked about this. He cited a book called Blowback. Uh, Ron believes that, you know, if the Chinese come over here, for example, and, and set up in the Gulf of Mexico and started doing all kinds of things to us, we might start getting a little bit angry with the Chinese. And, you know, so I, I just want to, I want to get, move on a little bit onto some of this international, uh, international policy that you mentioned uh, about. But I'd just also like to ask you, Ed, because, you know, maybe it's established, I believe that it's true that, uh, that FDR was well aware of what was going on, and Churchill was too, I have no doubt about that, in World War II, and that we were going to get hit. Uh, but most people don't believe it. It certainly isn't something that's being taught in our classroom. So I'd like to ask you, where is the proof? Where, can you point people to some, yes. some evidence of yes. proof about, uh, about Pearl Harbor and how it was staged to get us into the Second yeah. War? Definitely I can. And um, I wouldn't be making statements like this unless I felt that uh, there was absolute un- in- uncontroversial. Well, I know that's true about you, Ed, because anybody who reads The Creature from Jekyll Island will see how well documented your work is. Yeah. You're very meticulous. I might just mention that to everybody, that, that, that Ed Griffin is very meticulous and very conscientious about what he says, and he doesn't speak yeah. recklessly. So that's why your words carry an enormous amount of credibility with me, Ed, and I think anybody else who, who's, who's followed your work over the years. But if you could just let us no, uh, yes. Well, it's all on the on the uh, internet on our website, uh, Jay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would uh, uh, encourage anybody who's interested in this sordid piece of history is to go to our free, uh, Freedom Force website, which mm-hmm. is uh, freedomforceinternational.org. Mm-hmm. Freedomforceinternational.org. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a section, a major section called Issues. Mm-hmm. And if you go to the Issues page and then go to the bottom of that page there's a series of essays uh, entitled the future is calling and uh, you'll find all of this documentation in that series of essays and i might say when i when i use the word documentation i'm not uh, i'm not implying that i'm taking somebody's word for it that wrote a book mm-hmm. i'm drawing directly from the uh, the statements of the people themselves who mm-hmm. participated in the event Mm-hmm. and who first denied it and then later bragged about it. That's the kind of documentation I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I know that's true. You've done a lot of, a lot of um, reporting firsthand, uh, eyewitness and, and you know, people that have been there. Um, I'd like to just ask you, 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 I guess, were implying, not I guess, I know you were implying and, and basically stating 
that uh, that U.S. policy in the Second War was to get America into the war. I know that American opinion was, you know, something like 90% against getting into the war until we were hit in Pearl Harbor. They were there were demonstrations on on Manhattan's upper west upper east side where there was Germantown uh there were massive you know pro nazi demonstrations during those days but america as a whole didn't want to get sucked into the into the internet into this world war and in fact george washington wouldn't have wanted us to either i mean washington said just avoid the europe's and any entanglement with europe he warned us against that but but nonetheless um uh there were interests i think could you tell us who some of the interests might have been some of these same interests, perhaps banking interests, that wanted to get us into the second war. Who were those interests? And and uh, yeah, if you could just talk about that for a minute. Well, I'm I'm thinking now, uh, hoping that I can come up with something significant on the Second World War. It's not mm-hmm. as easy uh, to identify the banking interests as it was during the First World. The First War. war. Well, maybe <laughs> we can get into that in a minute. Um, <clears throat> there's no question that the the banks were, uh, st- you know, stood. To benefit immensely by the loans, the huge loans that would be required to fund war production, mm-hmm. and on both so, sides, on both sides, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, that's not very hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. But back in World War One or the beginning of World War One, it was quite a different story. The United States uh, was uh, was very very neutral, and uh, the only way that we could save these loans uh, put out by J.P. Morgan and Company. Which was the um, the loan source for all uh, U.S. investment in the bonds from Great Britain and France? See, they were they were engaged in a war against uh, Germany, and they needed money to fight this war, and they were raising a lot of that money from American investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, why not? But the heck, here's a country like France, front mm-hmm. country like Great Britain, fighting against an evil empire. Why shouldn't we help them and make some profit besides? So sure. Uh, Ed, unlike, unlike now, America was a net saving nation as China is now. We were, we were in a position to lend money to other countries. Yes. And so uh, J.P. Morgan was in the middle of that. That he was, he was the broker. His firm was the brokerage house for all of those loans. And there were tens of millions in those days. That was big money. Tens of millions of dollars uh, of uh, government loans being made to... Uh, I mean, private loans being made to the governments of Great Britain and France. Well, all of a sudden, the war was going not well for Great Britain and France. It looked like they were going to lose the war, and they were going to have to, uh, uh, you know, accept terms. That would have meant that those bonds would not be repaid. That would have been a financial catastrophe to J.P. Morgan mm-hmm. and all of the investors. And that's when that's when you really begin to see the hidden forces uh, come out of the woodwork and begin to put pressure on public opinion and on government to get the United States into the war mm-hmm. on the side of Great Britain and France. Not for humanitarian reasons, but for financial reasons. And that's all part of the history that's documented in, in The Creature from Jekyll Island. Right. It, it would certainly seem probably some of the same arguments that you had to save the large Wall Street interests for the good of the American economy would also be uh, part of the thinking of the ruling elite there. In other words, if J.P. Morgan went down and J.P. Morgan had actually, had, you know, had been involved in bailing out the U.S. economy uh, long about that time, a little earlier, perhaps in the panic of 1907, 
the uh, and Morgan, I, I, as I understand it, was really very adamantly opposed to having to do that again. And one of the reasons that he wanted to see the Federal Reserve set up was to socialize this this risk and so forth. But I, but you can sort of see the entanglement of the of the system, can't you? With it, with this, you see how policy and the uh, interest of government being uh, really supported by by these large interests, uh, large financial interests. But I'm thinking, Ed, in terms of World War II, it seems to me I heard there were that Ford was selling was selling vehicles to to Hitler, for example. I think there was some uh, maybe Chase was was involved in lending um, to the other side as well, and so forth. So I'm not clear either. And I I would you know certainly I think I've, there was information out there discussing that sort of thing. Uh, would would like to talk a little bit more about uh, I, I I guess so what you're saying here is once the Fed had control once this ruling elite had control of the monetary system then you could finance wars you could finance socialism couldn't you well you can finance anything <laughs> because right. you just create the money out of nothing and uh, pass it on to the taxpayers um, you know if it's lost so what uh, the taxpayers will make good for it uh, on it. Of so, course, yeah, we did have, have one problem, Ed, didn't we? Uh, we we had something called a gold back system, um, and Roosevelt took that away from the public in in the 1930s during the Great Depression, and then Nixon took it away from uh, the international scene, and that really paved the way for endless amounts of money and debt that that it, that's gotten us into the kind of trouble we're in now. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, I would, Jay. It's an interesting fact that the uh, American money ever since, uh, well, even before the Federal Reserve System, although it was called, uh, you know, backed by gold or silver, it was never 100% backed by gold or silver. It was mm-hmm. always fractional money from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But uh, even being backed, uh, you know, 50% is rather substantial. That means you can't just create it out of nothing. Uh, you've got to have at least 50% before you can create another dollar. You've got to have another half ounce of, of silver someplace. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, th- th- even having a partial, a partial backing was a serious limit to the ability of the banks to, uh, to create money and then put it in, into a loan and collect interest on the loan. And, uh, but ever since uh, the very beginning of that process, uh, you saw through various acts of Congress and uh, and um, rules by the Treasury Department and executive orders by uh, the presidents, every few years there'd be a little whittling away on that reserve until finally, as you just said, said in 1971 when Nixon signed his executive order, that took the last vestige of any backing at all out of the U.S. dollar. Now, at that point, there was, there's no break whatsoever. That means that the banks uh, could create any amount of money that they wish, and now we see them doing exactly that. Well, we do see them doing that, Ed, and what it's, lent, uh, what it's led to, as the Austrians understand, the Austrian ec- economists who don't, who don't gain much attention these days because, they're, because their policies would be quite opposite of what we've been seeing, uh, what, has, what the policies have been in effect. The Austrians, of course, point out that all of this is causing malinvestment because you're, punching, you're pushing huge amounts of money into the system 
that cannot be uh, efficiently absorbed. And we've seen this with the housing market debacle. We've seen it with, you know, with the dot-coms before that, all kinds of problems that exist. And the debt doesn't go away. The income isn't there to service the debt. The debt doesn't go away. So faster and faster, more and more government and, and the Fed has to print more, more money out of thin air. There's nothing to anchor it. So the Chinese are saying, we think this is enough. We're not really sure we want to keep buying your dollars anymore. Uh, I, I, there's so much more to talk about. I see we've only got about four minutes left. But John Perkins was on this show a number of weeks ago, and he's actually going to be on this show again in two weeks. He's the author of a book called The Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and Perkins is talking about how our CIA, or basically it's the CIA undercover, goes in and tries to get third world countries indebted so that they have to sell us their raw materials. And if the, if the dictators won't cooperate, we send in the jackals, we arrange, uh, we meaning the CIA, arranges the demise of a, of a local politician, his airplane goes down, an accident of some kind occurs, and the message is there for the next, next leader that he better play ball with America or else. Then he says that if they fail to, if the jackals fail to get the dictator out, and if he's important enough, we'll send in the military. Now, Perkins suggests that that's exactly what happened in Iraq, that we sent in the military because we wanted that oil you know, the large corporate interest in America wanted that oil. I'm wondering if you agree with, if you think that's, that's a possible, if that's a possibility. Oh, by the way, Perkins also suggests another reason that we went after Saddam was because he insisted on getting paid with euros rather than dollars. Would just like your thoughts on those two Perkins ideas, if you think they're, they're at all feasible. I think that Perkins is 100% accurate, mm-hmm. and uh, I would certainly endorse our, all of that. Uh, of course, he has a much more solid uh, base for making that statement tonight because he lived in it. That was his yeah. business. Yes. Uh, but uh, from what I can see, uh, I see nothing to uh, disagree with. However, I would, uh, I would ask Perkins when you get him on the show, uh-huh. uh, and he's very good about pointing out the horrors of these collectivists on the right, so-called. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, he seems to be very soft uh, on collectivists on the left, people okay. like uh, Castro and Chavez. He seems to like those people. Yeah. I'm wondering, does he not see that that's basically the same game from the other side? Good question, yeah. Ed. I'll try to I'll try to ask that of him and and find yeah. out if if that's uh, you know if he sees that or not. I, yeah. I I I agree with you. I think he tends to be a little softer on the people from the left. But anyway, uh, that's a question for Perkins. What about Afghanistan? Then we're in Afghanistan, and I want to ask John this one as well. Why does he think we're in Afghanistan? Yeah. What's the big deal there? I mean, this is we're not we're not getting anywhere in Afghanistan the way it seems. Well, that's assuming that's assuming that we're there to uh, to restore the peace. And right. Of course, there are people like skeptics like myself. Yeah. You got to be kidding. That it's never been our reason for being mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably some economic interest, energy <laughs> again, perhaps. Yes, energy and global uh, dominance, global restructuring. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Well, we're seeing Wall Street bailed out. Um, we're seeing a country that seems to be in demise in so many ways. Um, our educational system, I wanted to get into that if I could, but actually, since there's not any time, we've only got 30 seconds. Ed, I thought we had enough time, but we only, again, scratched the surface. I guess we're going to have to have you back again. You do a lot of work on health care, I mean, on, on, um, on alternative medicine, don't you? Would you care to just talk about that as we close? Well, how much time do we have? Well, we, we have a few seconds. Can you, I, guess seconds. People, I guess people should just go to well, realityzone.com. Yeah, and, I think and learn. in summary I can say that the, the kind of corruption we have seen in the banking industry, uh, you see in any kind of a industry that's cartelized, and that's certainly true of the health industry. It's a cartel, a cartel industry, and it's not what it appears to be.
Well, Ed, I know that you have some very positive things that people can do, too, uh, to take care of themselves, to try to remain as healthy as possible, uh, take the initiative themselves in spite of the, uh, the things we're up against uh, because of our healthcare system and so forth. So, Ed, I want to thank you so much for coming on with me again. Uh, I guess there's never enough time with you. We're going to have to have you again uh, back again sometime if you'll agree to do it. I, be I'm my really, pleasure, Jay. Be I'm really pleasure. grateful to you and all the work you're doing. And again, folks, please go to realityzone.com. That's realityzone.com to learn more about Ed Griffin's work. And there's some free stuff there that I'm sure you can benefit from. Uh, don't go away, folks, because we're going to be right back. We're going to be talking to the CEO of a company in a natural gas business, a company that we think has great upside potential for investments uh, in natural gas. So don't go away, but we'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. Have you been acquiring physical gold, silver, and coins? Are you receiving the best price and the best service you can? Why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country? Resource Consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers, several websites, and countless stockbrokers and financial planners. Call them now and find out how they can help you. 800-494-4149. Or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. 
He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm here now with Alan Sharouk. He's the president and CEO of CBM Asia Development Corp., uh, CBM Asia Development Corp. is a client of Jay's watch list, and we are now uh, providing some, uh, allowing people in Jay's watch list to tell our listeners about their company and uh, how they plan to build shareholder wealth for their, for their, uh, for their investors. And so uh, welcome, Alan, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you very much, Jay. Very happy to be here. Let me ask you, did I pronounce your last name correctly? Very good job. Thank you. Sharuk? Yes. Good. Okay. Well, I usually butchered them, so I got lucky today, I guess. Anyway, I want to get right into your story. We've only got about 10 minutes or so. So <clears throat> CBM Asia Development Corp. Uh, trades on the Toronto Venture Exchange TCF. is the symbol, about 51 million shares outstanding, selling at about 30 cents a share today. And you can learn more about this company by going to their website at cbmasia.ca, cbmasia.ca. So, uh, Alan, I'd like to ask you, you're involved in Indonesia is where you're, um, you're operating, and coal bed methane. Could you explain to our listeners the process of extracting gas in a coal bed methane project? Well, Jay, the, the difference between conventional uh, natural gas extraction and the coal bed methane extraction is basically the host rocks are different. In, uh, in conventional natural gas, you're going to get your, your natural gas coming out of shales, or sandstones uh, <clears throat> with the COVID methane, of course, you're getting out of the coal seams. And COVID methane has been a very, very valuable resource in the United States with the San Juan Basin and the Powder River Basin being prolific producers. And that technology that was learned in North America and pioneered by companies like uh, British Petroleum in the San Juan is being applied now to other basins in the world, and especially in Australia, is becoming very, very profitable. And I think that for your listeners, would probably want to differentiate between natural gas prices here in North America, which have been very, very low on the Henry Hub, especially over the last 12 months. The Henry Hub spot prices have been very low and been very depressing for gas producers in North America. But the Asia gas market, especially the liquid natural gas market, is 
very, very prolific for producers right now. And if you, you could probably check on our website and check the, the prices that <clears throat> Chinese contracts are being paid out of the LNG plant in Qatar, which is now the largest in the world. In, in the, locally in Indonesia, there's two gas plants that, <clears throat> one of them, the Bontang plant, the other, Iran plant, have got contracts with the Japanese and Korean uh, uh, buyers over there. And those are in the 15 to $18 per thousand or per million BTU per thousand cubic feet um, per day <clears throat> per day. And they they reflect a whole different price deck for for producers that can produce into those LNG plants. Uh, the 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 issue I think for, for your 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 investors or, or or management groups like ours is you gotta ask yourself when you get into a gas play and you want to spend a lot of money on exploration and, and, and development, is who are we going to sell this gas to, and mm-hmm. what can we expect our prices to be? Sure. In our situation over in East Kalimantan, we are 30 kilometers away from, the, from Asia's largest and the world's most historically most prolific LNG plant. That's the Bontang plant. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it's just a chip shot away from where our concession is, and the, the customers there are Japanese. They're paying top dollar for the gas that they're importing out of that uh, Bontang plant, and the, the and the plant itself is running very. It, it's under capacity at this time. So to put a new pl- a gas plant into into uh, to, to build a new gas plant, I think estimates are like thirty seven billion dollars, and that doesn't wow. count pipeline that you have to build to it. So a play like ours is much farther ahead from a play in a remote area. In South Sumatra, we, where we have another concession, we're less than 30 kilometers away from a pipeline that runs north to Singapore and the same distance from a pipeline that runs south to Jakarta. So we've got established markets there. And because of the infrastructure that was built through conventional oil and gas, uh, you know, Indonesia was at one time up until last year an OPEC country. They've got a well-established oil and gas infrastructure there with pipelines, compressors, LNG plants, terminals, it's a big step ahead of, a, of, a, of a, a play that you might get involved with in an area that has not, uh, that's a virgin area. Mm-hmm. Um, the history here in Indonesia, as I mentioned, they're, they're a, a former OPEC uh, country. Uh, in 2006, they passed a law to take advantage of the massive amount of coal bed methane potential in the country, and that's estimated uh, by uh, ARI that uh, there's Potentially 450 trillion cubic feet of gas of potential, which dwarfs their conventional uh, uh, potential, uh, <clears throat> the potential for conventional gas in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we participated last November. We were awarded as part of, part of a consortium um, the third contract that was ever granted to uh, contractors there in the uh, coal bed methane sector. And just in December, we bought our way into actually the first contract that was that was. Uh, uh, ever awarded there and drilled a well back in September that gave us exposure in South Sumatra. Uh, the attractive, uh, what we find attractive about these two basins, not only just because of the infrastructure there, but it's estimated that the South Sumatra basin has upwards of 130 trillion cubic feet of gas in their coal, and the Kutai basin, which is which is approximately to that Bontang plant, has got potential 80 trillion cubic feet in the basin. The coals are thick, the gas contents are high, well within the, within the economic parameters, and they're both close to market. So we, you know, we really like the situation we're in right there. I think that those Kutai properties that we have in the Kutai basin, 
they're probably as good as it's going to get in that country. Um, we are okay. also very happy with the partners that we have in Indonesia. Uh, in South Sumatra, our partner is Medco, uh, Med- Medco Energy. Medco is the largest independent in Indonesia. They have large acreage position. They have qualified staff all the way up and down. They've got rigs. They've got earth-moving equipment to build roads. They've got access to pipelines. A very, very strong partner to have. In East Cal, we were lucky to get involved with a company called uh, uh, PTE. They uh, they are headed by a gentleman by the name of Udiana Irwanati. And Udi was the chairman of or the president of Caltex, which is Chevron Indonesia. And at the time he was president there, Chevron was producing half of the oil coming out of that country. Very qualified individual. On our staff, uh, we've got a gentleman by the name of Harvey Price. He was the, the, he made his reputation as being the first person ever in the world to make money out of coal bed methane. He did that down in Brookwood, Alabama, many years ago. Um, also, we've got a, a, a petroleum engineer by the name of Charlie Bloomquist that worked with Pertamina for many, many years over there, knows the ins and outs of the business. Uh, you know, operating in that country, so we've got to. It's not like we're just walking into that country not knowing any partners, not having any quality partners, and not having any experience ourselves. We've got very high quality gentlemen, uh, and Jim Sharuk as well is our head geologist over there. Our here at our head office, we've been very, very competent in financing these companies. Uh, whenever our companies need need money, we're able to go get it from the markets. Uh, we're, we're we develop. Uh, the reputation with investors uh, throughout North America and Europe, and we're going to get a good shot at developing a large resource over there. Uh, if uh, Jay, if you if you have a chance to look at our website, we have published uh, gas in place estimates that have been uh, uh, presented by third party uh, um, uh, evaluators. Mm-hmm. And you know what's at stake for us here is about uh, the potential there for about oh, a little over three trillion cubic feet of gas based on our interest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way these evaluators, and we did our own in-house evaluation of these things, they base them on uh, on the extensive seismic that's been run over those areas because they're mature oil and gas uh, producing areas. There's lots of drill logs available so that you can check the thickness mm-hmm. of these coals. Uh, there's outcrop data and a lot of information that you can use to establish potential gas in place estimates. And what, sure. What, you know, that number that we threw around there, we got, you know, we ask ourselves, you know, what does that mean to us? Where, what what type of potential does that uh, mm-hmm. does that give us for for appreciation and and where does it where how can you measure all that and i think right. that if you if our goal is to, is to develop a 3p reserve over there on our concessions in indonesia and what will that do for how can that reflect for our for our shareholders and i think the best measure of that is if you go last year and look at the trades the industry trades in in the, the most a uh, mature market in that uh, Asia Pacific rim. You'd have to go down to Australia and look at that that arena down there, and it's about nine years old. And they've spent billions and billions and billions of dollars developing their coal bed methane resources. And a good a good company to look at that started with about you know as a four million dollar company is Aero uh, Energy. Aero started I don't know you guys putting the guys putting you know four or five million dollars together. Now they're I think a one point two billion dollar market cap. Alan, is and, that a is that a Canadian company? Does no, that's in, an Australian company. They trade in the, uh, on the Australian stock exchange. What's the name of it again? Arrow. Arrow Energy. And I don't okay. have yeah, I don't have the symbol here. And I, and no, I, but we'll we'll a, we'll look into it because we're interested in comps. You know, comparable companies, and there aren't too many. I think that really mirror what you're doing, especially in that part of the world. Um, 
let me ask you though you your uh, philosophy or policy your uh, business plan calls for you to not necessarily produce as i understand but probably uh to become a, you know to build an asset play to to have a, a percentage holding by the way what sort of per- participations do you take in these different wells what percentage we've got in the kutai west we've got an 18% interest in that concession in the in the uh, South Sumatra, we have, will have, when we finish uh, financing all aspects of that, about a 24% interest, and likewise a little larger than that in a concession that we have made application for and have yet to be granted. Uh, we will probably have around a 30% interest in that one as well. So we're minority stakeholders. We've got good operators in that area as far as on-the-ground operations. Uh, most of the technical uh, expertise comes out of our office and is contracted to uh, to our operators. Uh, so we have we have technical control uh, on what gets done over in, in in all the drilling areas that we're involved with. There, uh, I think if you want to talk about you know where this company could go in the future, you know I look at this as, as who is in the area and, and 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 I look at in East Kalimantan, our neighbor is British Petroleum and they run a they run the, their operation through a different entity there. Uh, <clears throat> but they're the world's largest producer of coal bed methane. There are, they're, they're proper, their concession is adjacent to ours, which is adjacent to the Bontang plant. The owners of that Bontang plant, there's five owners there, Pertamina is one, Total is another, Chevron is another, uh, British Petroleum for sure is another, and E&I is another. Those companies all have contracts to fill with their, with their customers over in Japan. Mm-hmm. I would think that as these assets get developed, Small companies like ours are going to get picked off and rolled into bigger projects with mm-hmm. bigger companies. And I think that our job here is to develop these assets and, and, and develop the 3P reserves so that it gives the, the, the potential predators out there, or the markets in general, a good picture of how much gas is in the ground, how much it's going to cost to get it out, and what that value is going to be. On okay, the- let me ask you, Alan, we only got it, we're really uh, just about out of time here. Let me ask you. Uh, you mentioned financing. How much financing do you have to do? I think it's important that investors have a sense of how much dilution you might have coming into your company. Well, we've uh, we've raised close to ten million dollars right now to get ourselves in this position that we're in right now. Uh, we're long uh, we're long uh, acreage over there, and we expect to spend uh, the rest of the money that we've got, um, approximately four and a half million dollars, on drilling over the next uh, twelve months and drill a lot of wells. Uh, these wells. There are low risk once you establish reserves, but it does cost a fair amount of money. So I sure. would hope that uh, that we'll drill a certain amount of money, and then probably for compressors and for pipelines, you know, go to the debt uh, to go to a debt instrument and and kind of uh, stem the tide of dilution. When do you think you're going to have to raise more money? How soon? I think probably we've got enough money to last for another 12 months here. Oh, that's good. So yeah. then potentially you can uh, build some asset value and get your share price up in that time before you have to do some more financing. We're in the exactly. You know, we're in a, we're in a crucial point in our development here. If our first couple of wells indicate that there is economic, real economic potential in these first wells that we drill, I expect that that we'll be on our way to to an asset appreciation here for sure. Very good. Well, thank you very much. Um, Thank you very much, Alan, for uh, for telling your story. It is a very exciting story. We'll keep on top of it, uh, watch the, your press releases, and share them with our listeners from time to time. 
Uh, it's kind of good to have something other than a gold company on our show uh, to learn more about. That certainly, gold isn't the only thing in the world that you can make money at, although it's been a very good good place to be. But uh, I, I thank you very much for sharing your very interesting story with us, and uh, perhaps we'll have you back on again sometime yeah, I'd love to. in the thank you very much. distant future. Thank you very much, and uh, all the best. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Roger Wiegand, I think, if we get him on the phone, and uh, Chen Lin. Uh, for the wrap-up of today's, uh, today's program. We'll be right back. Don't go away. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back. I'm Jay Taylor. I've been given notice that we only have three minutes left to go. It's not fair to have Roger and Chen come on for three minutes, but I'm going to just shut up and let Roger tell me, Roger, how did the market fare today? And do you think we're headed for something cataclysmic on the downside in the near future, or do we have a little time before that happens? Jay, we've got time on the cataclysm, I think. I don't think we're going to see it till May, June, July. An answer on the gold, we're, we're into a continuation triangle. Same thing for silver. It looks ready It looks ready to explode on the upside from what I can see on the charts. Uh, so you're I'm very, very bullish on, on gold and silver. Absolutely. We put on a new junior this morning, a brand new one, two weeks old. Uh, they opened at like 55 or uh, like pennies, and they, and they doubled. 
came back on profits, and they're getting ready to go again. Uh, Who is that, I, Roger? I, you want to I, share the name? Uh, yeah, that's Candenti Gold. It's a new company that okay. came on with Candenti January 10th mm-hmm. or 11th, I think. Okay, excellent. Uh, Chen, uh, what are your thoughts on this market? We had a good day today, eh? Yes, uh, pretty good day. And and so you said you're building a little cash right now. You, at least you reduced your margin levels, and you're building up a little more cash. So what are, what is your strategy now going forward into this year? Well, I, I'm, primarily, I'm just riding this. I think that the, the main danger is uh, the, quant- the the fast supposed to finish the quantitative easing uh, very soon. Uh, I mean, I don't see they can finish it. So we'll see what's going to happen. So I'm just like a wait and see. In the meantime, I'm you know fully invested. Um, in, in gold and silver and uh, agriculture, energy, as well as the healthcare stuff. Okay. Well, it's certainly uh, the quantitative easing thing. In other words, the Fed buying the U.S. Treasuries uh, out of thin air rather than the Chinese or other savers of the world buying them is certainly, uh, you know, certainly has pumped money into the system. And I'm looking at something called the Global U.S. Dollar Liquidity Measure, which is actually falling off a cliff right now. And we've seen that over the last number of bubbles. Whenever this has happened, we've seen a major decline in the equity markets than commodity markets. So we never know, I guess, how soon that might take place or if it will even. But uh, but certainly the warning signals are out there. And, uh, Roger, I think you agree that we – that, that there are some dangers, uh, maybe a little further down the line than Dr. McHugh might suggest, but down the line for a major decline in the equity markets. Absolutely. Is that true? We totally agree with Mr. McHugh. And the other day, uh, we almost agreed right on the button on the long bond for the future. He said 82, and we said 80. That's mm-hmm. many months or maybe even years away, but that's our number. All right. Well, thank you, Roger and Chen. Sorry we don't have more time. I, I just cut into this last segment with the with the prior segment on the coal bed methane story. But in any event, thank you very much. I just want to thank our uh, our listeners for listening. I want to thank our uh, sponsors for making this show financially possible. Uh, we also want to thank the people that make this show logistically possible. Uh, my engineer, uh, Tacey Trump, my uh, Chasey Trump, who is so responsible for helping me out here, getting going, and uh, except I'm fumbling all over the place because I'm out of time. Uh, thank you, uh, Justin Jackman, my engineer. Tacey Trump, my senior executive producer. I drew a blank. Ruben Colombe, who's my operations manager for making the show logistically possible. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. Until next week, when we're going to have uh, the Gata Boys with us, uh, Chris Powell and Bill Murphy. Goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time.